Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, uh, I would encourage you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. And if you don't have one with you, you want to kind of follow along with us, we've got some placed under the chairs. So if you look around, you'll probably find one under the chair. If you want to follow along, we'll be on page 978. We've been going through this series in Ephesians that we've called A New Identity. So if you look at the artwork, you're supposed to be thinking of uh, where you find your identity. When you look in the mirror, who are you? Who do you think of yourself as? And, and do you consider yourself based on whatever tribe you've been raised in, whatever neighborhood you were raised in, maybe whatever circumstances you're going through right now? Or, or do you reckon your identity and who you are based on what God says about you, based on what God has accomplished for us through Jesus? And again and again in Ephesians, we're told to think of ourselves as if we were adopted by God. That he loves us and he's made us his kids. And we're going to hit that theme really hard today. It's called, uh, the sermon is called Dearly Loved Children, based on a, a verse in chapter 5, verse 1, at the very end of our section that we're going to read this morning. And we're really going to hit on this theme again the next couple of weeks. Uh, what we're seeing here is that because we're loved, we're supposed to be like our daddy. Because he loves us, we're supposed to be like him and then love other people. So the, the Bible story is that we were sinners, we were rebels that went our own way, but God reached out to us in love. He adopted us through Christ, made us his children, and now we're supposed to act that way with other people. We're supposed to share that. We're supposed to live that way. We're supposed to look like him. And, and so we're going to read and, and look through this concept here Starting, I'm going to back up and start in verse 24. It was the last verse we were in last week that kind of picks up this theme. And then this theme is threaded all the way down to the first verse of chapter 5. And you'll see how it kind of bookends them here. Chapter 4, verse 24 says, Put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Right? So that's the likeness. We're, we're supposed to look like Him. We talked last week about how, I mean, again, the big story of the Bible, going all the way back into Genesis 1, we're created to image God. So we either do that or we don't. I would say generally the story is we don't do that very well, right? We, we may remind people of God in some ways, but generally we don't do that very well. And so redemption and what God accomplished through the cross, that's all about restoring that image. And so there's this daily process of us looking more and more like Him, bearing that family resemblance. Again, our identity not based on really the color of our skin or the money that's in our bank account, our identity based on looking more and more like God who tells us, by grace, you're my child. I love you. I've forgiven you of your sins. So now we've got work cut out for us, right? Our work is to look more and more like our daddy that actually loves us. And so he's going to give us a laundry list. This is going to be a hard day, okay? So just buckle your seatbelts. He's going to give us a, a laundry list of things that we need to clean up in our life based on what he's done for us. So it says in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. It says in 26, Be angry, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need doesn't stop he keeps going let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the holy spirit of god by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. That's the hardest one right there. Be, just be nice, okay? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then here I believe, again, this is kind of a summary, tying this all up, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. In other translations, dearly loved children. See yourself as really loved by God, and that's going to change the way that you live. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So this new life, is not, okay, don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, so that then you'll be good enough to walk into God's presence. It's, he's adopted you. He's brought you into his presence. Therefore, live like it, right? Therefore, live like you're loved and live in, in this new way. As a result of his love, love other people. Love each other. Let me pray for us and, and ask God to teach us this morning. God, we pray that you would teach us what it looks like to imitate you, to, to walk in love as Christ loved us, to, to love because you loved us. God, I just pray this morning that you would protect our hearts against this reflex that we have to think this is a list of things we have to do to be good enough for you to like us. God, help us to to believe the radical and insane idea that you love us because of what you've done. You love us, and you prove that through Jesus. You put our sins on him and you give us his righteousness. You delight in us and you've adopted us. And I pray that you'd help us to believe it and to live as if it is true. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So this theme is, is that we would, we would love our daddy, we would know that our daddy loves us, and then we would start to look like him. We'd start to look like him more and more. And again, this is a process, right? It's not, it's not that he loves you because you've cleaned yourself up. Now he loves you. No. We were, we were messed up, we were sinners, we were rebels. He, he adopted us, he made us his, he loved us because of his action through Christ. He placed our sins on Christ and he placed Christ's righteousness into us by faith. If you trust that, he says, you're, you're saved, you're mine, you're adopted, you belong to me. Nothing can change that. And then he says, because of that, start, start being like me. He, he tells us to imitate him, to, to live like him, to, to love the way he loves. And so that's going to radically change the way we see the world. It's, it's natural for a kid to, to imitate his father, right? Uh, my son, I've noticed, you know, he's, he's a teenager. He can kind of have this kind of deadpan, non-emotional look sometimes. And uh, I, I can tend to interact that way. I mean, probably the most expressive thing you'll ever see out of me all week is this half an hour every week, right? I'm, I'm Generally, I kind of have this flat default. I'm a pretty laid-back person, and so I kind of have noticed my son's kind of imitating me. I've, t- I've told you all before, when he was two, I noticed that he kind of walked like this, and it's like, why did my son walk like that? And I started realizing, oh, I, I kind of walk like that. And um, I heard this great story of some friends of ours that were kind of founders that helped the, stir- the church start. They were uh, friends of ours when we were in Temple, and so when we moved out here, uh, he worked here, and so he came with us to help us start the church. And his wife had told me one time that in the teen years, their son started really caring about his faith and started wanting to read his Bible and spend time in the morning to pray. And so when that, when that shift started t- you know, taking place maybe around the age of 15, what she noticed was that her son did what he'd seen his dad doing for 15 years. His dad had always 
gone to this chair in the living room and read his Bible and prayed. And so dad gets up early, goes, does that, goes to work, and she started noticing her son then getting into that chair to read his Bible and pray. And I thought, you know what, if I, you know, if I could have my son imitate me in that way, that's, that's the way I want him to imitate me. It's, it's a beautiful thing when it's positive, right? My dad's a whistler, and so I love to whistle. If you work around me, sometimes it's annoying, but you know, hopefully sometimes it's also, you know, brightens your day a little bit, but I love to whistle, and so I imitate my father in that. God has even bigger things here he wants us to imitate, right? He wants us to be generous, and to be kind, and to be loving, and to be like him. The way that uh, in our sin he loved us first, he wants us to love other people first in that way. The, the first thing that I want us to think about is that as dearly loved children, we should love then as secure children. There should be this just bedrock of security, this unshakable security that takes root in our life because we know through the gospel, through what God accomplished through Jesus, that he loves us and we're secure in that. Think of it in a negative, uh, in a negative way. Some of us have, have not been loved well. Some of us have been loved very well. We're probably all across the spectrum when we think about the way we were raised. And that then affects the way that we walk into certain situations, right? Think about the difference when you walk into a room secure, like everything's going to be okay, I've got this, everything's fine, versus when you walk into a room going, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know, you know what's going on. Those are two different ways to walk through life. Think about if if you really just thought you were on your own. You thought you were completely on your own and your survival was only up to you and what you could pull off. You, you might resort to, to lying, cheating, stealing, doing whatever it takes, right? Kind of fighting for yourself and for your survival. And what the New Testament tells us that is in the Gospel, we, we don't have to feel on our own. We don't have to feel like we have to fight and scrap for our survival. We can feel secure and therefore, we can be truthful. We can feel secure, and therefore, we don't have to steal because we know we're taken care of, right? And so it gives us this security and a different posture through which to walk through life. The first two verses, 25 and 26, are actually connected in that way. They, they seem like different things that he's commanding, but because of the Old Testament quotations that he draws these from, we know they're, they're a little bit connected. I think the connection is our security and trusting God to take care of us. So look at verse 25. Verse 25 says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we speak, we speak the truth because we know that we're secure in our position as being one with each other. We're a part of a whole, right? We're members. And in uh, other parts of Scripture, we see him talking about this concept of members like a body, right? And so uh, as God's people some of us may be thumbs and some of us may be ears right and the idea is we have different gifts we're made different we look different we have different interests and we're different gifts that we're supposed to bring together and use together the other interesting thing i i saw this week when i was researching uh just these words as i was kind of looking through the greek and the original languages is the word member can have that normal connotation we think of as a member of a body or a member of a team but it also can have the connotation of music right? It's the same word we would use. It's connected to the same word we would use for melody. And so it's the idea of a, a part that you would play uh, on a musical team, right? Like an orchestra or band. I have a picture here of, of some kind of orchestra. And, and so if we trust that God really loves us, then we're okay with the part he wants us to play, right? 
if you don't trust him, you're going to be kind of railing against him. Like, why, why'd you give me this instrument? I wanted that one, right? I don't want to play the drums. I want to play the guitar or what, you know, whatever it is. God says, Here, here's your part. I want you to play your part and, and recognize that you're a part of the family. Think of it in just as children. I mean, some of you have brothers and sisters. Anybody here have a brother or a sister? Anyone? Okay. Probably there was never any competition in your family. Probably never any comparing or anything like that. But in some families, that happens. In some families, this bitterness can, can set in where you're kind of looking at them and looking at you. And what have they been given and what do I have? And comparing yourself. That all kind of breaks down if you know we're all loved by the Father and He's given you a particular gift and He's given you a role to play. So go do it. Go, go play it. And Paul says that, that that actually affects how we speak then. Then we don't have to lie or twist the truth. We can accept reality as it is. We, we can deal with things as they are if we're secure in the Father's love for us. And we're okay with the part that He's given us to play. We're not competing with other people. We're not fighting and scratching to get ahead. We're okay. God, God loves me. And I'll, I'll play this part. And I'll do the best I can with the part He's given me. And so this then allows us to speak truth. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This is actually a quote from Zechariah 8.16, which is a prophecy of this future renewed humanity that God is going to build out of the Jewish people. There's all these prophecies, especially during the the, uh, time when they'd been exiled, right? They'd sinned and God scattered them all over the world, but he made these promises. He said, the day is going to come where the world's going to be renewed. I'm going to work through you. Even though you're scattered, even though you've sinned, there's going to be this new humanity that's going to come through you, the Jewish people, and we see the fruition of that through Jesus, that he's rebuilding this new humanity. And Paul pulls that into now and says, that's who you are, people of God, people of Jesus. You're this new humanity. God's, God's making this beautiful music with you. Play your part well. Trust that he loves you. And take your gift and, and run with it. And then how does that relate to verse 26? Well, it's interesting when this is a quote from Psalm 4.4. In Psalm 4.4, David is complaining, saying, God, why are these people lying about me? These people aren't telling the truth about me. But then David tells his own soul in the psalm. David says, be angry, but do not sin. Yeah, bad stuff is happening. There's a righteous indignation. There's a righteous anger. People are lying about me. I'm not, maybe not getting my fair share in this group, in this family, on this team. But in your anger, do not sin. Trust your daddy to take care of it. Okay? Trust your daddy to take care of it. So 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. It's actually a command. So for those of you that are justice people, you can be excited about this, right? Be angry. All right, I have a command in the Bible. Memorize this verse. Be angry, but there's more to it, right? Be angry and and do not sin, okay? There's boundaries set around our anger and our desire for justice. Be angry and do not sin because you trust your father. He's going to take care of it, okay? You don't have to solve all the problems. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. No place, literally. Some translations say foothold, right? It's like don't give him a foothold. Don't give him a a little foot in the door because you're stirring things up with your anger. You're trying to accomplish the justice of your kingdom. Trust your Father to achieve His justice. You don't have to lie, and you don't have to get all freaked out about it. It's all right to have some righteous indignation. It's okay to have some righteous anger. There is such a thing 
but he limits it. He puts boundaries about it. He says, don't sin, okay? And don't let the sun go down on your anger, right? Be quick to reconcile. Don't let it fester and burn. Now, if you're married, don't use this if you're having an argument to force your spouse to finish the argument before you go to bed, right? Because then it's 3 o'clock in the morning and it's, it's only getting worse, okay? So don't take this too literally. The big idea is, is to don't let it fester. And sometimes the way you don't let something fester is you say, hey, I love you, you love me, let's have more of this fight tomorrow, okay? We'll, we'll work through this, all right? So be, be wise, be, be practical. But the idea is don't just let it boil and fester. Put some boundaries around your anger. There's such a thing as righteous indignation, but don't let it go out of control, and we're going to see more of that uh, in a few verses, so don't think I'm, I'm done with you yet. There. The next thing I want us to, uh, to look at is the idea of living and loving as generous children. So one of the ways that we imitate our Father is that He's generous, right? He's been generous to us. He loved us while we were still sinners, and now we should love Him in the same way. So we see this in verse 28 and 29. If you'll read those with me, it says, In 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, so that it may give grace to those who hear. So here we see the meeting of needs with our hands and with our mouths, both, right? He's saying, with your hands, work. Don't steal, but work to meet people's needs. And he says, with your mouths, speak in a way that builds other, people's, other people up. And it says uh, in the word in the English ESV standard here, it says, as fits the occasion, which is the exact same word as need that's, that's used in the other verse. So there's kind of a little parallel there where he's saying, to fit the need, use your mouth to fit the need, and use your hands, work to fit the need, right? So, so what does that mean? That, that means we see ourselves uh, as generous people, just as the way the Heavenly Father was generous to us, He came and He met our needs, okay? God approached us as needy. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the Scripture says. And so God approached us as needy, and He met our needs through Christ. And so we should then approach other people as needy, recognizing their need, and saying, hey, the God of the universe loves me and has forgiven me, so I, I, I pretty much got everything taken care of. I can meet other people's needs, right? And, and we should have a generosity to us so that we overflow to other people. As, as it gives this specific application about the way that we speak, I think it's interesting here to recognize what it's saying. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion or the need, that it may give grace to those who hear. I want to make an important distinction here because as Christians, historically, we focus more on the magic bad word list than on the purpose of our speech. You tracking with what I'm saying? So if you're a parent, it's fine to have your kind of off-limits words, right? I mean, every parent does that. We don't say that in our family, right? Be stupid. We don't call people stupid, right? I mean, you have, every, every parent has those, those lists, right? And the kids grow up with the list. But the danger is, is as your kids grow up with the list, they don't mature into adulthood. This is, this is adulthood, right? This is the proper use of language. As you grow older, you recognize, oh, there's not like some magical power associated with those words my mom and dad didn't want me to say, right? Some of you, even you went through this teen, maybe teen phase, where you started saying those words on purpose just to see if lightning struck, right? It was pretty exciting. It was thrilling. Again, that's not the point either. The, the point is, 
Use your words to build people up. Use your words to give grace to other people. So we have all these words, like, you know, like we have this list of words that things I, I wouldn't say from the pulpit because I'd lose half the congregation, but words that really, frankly, aren't magically bad. The point is, we shouldn't use words that tear people down. We should use words that build people up. So the list of words doesn't matter because you're going to teach your kids, don't, we don't ever say stupid in our family, and then they go to someone else's house, and they're like, they said the, the word stupid. What's going on? You know, and they're all confused. It's about insulting people and, and tearing people down versus building people up and giving people grace. So you, you, the list is fine. Give your kids a list. When they're little, they need a list. You know, they need to start somewhere. But move them and move yourself to a place of loving people with your words, being generous with your words. Do you use your words to build people up or to tear people down? What's the purpose of your speech? And are you recognizing the needs that people have? Everybody has different needs. Do you even listen? Do you even know what people's needs are? Pay attention to people. Know who they are. Know what they need so that you can speak blessing into their life instead of cursing. So you can build them up and give grace to those who hear. And then verse 28, he says this, this has something to do with how we work too. He says, don't steal, but work. Work with your hands. Labor, he says. Work hard. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So work hard with your hands, again, so that you would meet needs, so that you would be gracious, you'd give grace to other people. It doesn't say so that he can take care of people only according to the sense of how much they deserve it. It says meet needs. God came to us. We didn't deserve salvation. We didn't deserve forgiveness, but he forgave us. He met our need for reconciliation with himself through the cross at great cost to himself, at tremendous cosmic cost to himself on the cross. So he says, so don't be ashamed to work hard with your own hands. Don't be too good for it. Don't steal. Don't take from other people. Don't see people as an opportunity to, to get something but work so that you have something to share with others. I want to make it a little aside here too, just beyond meeting needs with our words and with our hands. There's this interesting uh, kind of lean, this interesting repetition that we see in scriptures where again and again we see Paul talking about working with your hands, right? Because a lot of times uh, we, we think we're too good for that, right? Some people, especially here, I mean, we're, this is the richest country in the world, less and less people are willing to work with their hands, and get their hands dirty. Paul and the Bible in general is always honoring that kind of work. We're not too good for that kind of work. We're actually like God when we do that kind of work. God is the God that's stooped down in the mud and, and made us out of the dust. Okay, And God is the God who created matter and things and animals. He filled and formed the world. When you go back and you read Genesis, it's actually a, a big contrast to some of the other religions of the world where the gods were kind of too good to be involved in our world. They, they stay at a distance. But our God, and as we imitate him, us, we should be very involved in life. We should be very involved in the earth and the way things are, in the here and now. And we shouldn't separate uh, the idea of God and who he is is just like these abstract principles up here and there's spiritual things and intellectual things that float around and then there's the day-to-day -day life, right? God is the God who says, it's a good thing when you make something with your hands to be a blessing to somebody else. 
It's a good thing when you cook a meal. It's a good thing when you change a diaper, right? God says these, these are good things. This is where we live. He's made us to work hard, to sweat, to be tired, to need to go to sleep, to need to eat food. He, he made us that way. That's part of his design, and it's good, and it's honorable. And so we need, as a people, to honor that. And that needs to be part of our attitude. I have a picture here of a potter with a, a pot at a, at a potter's wheel. He's shaping it. And, you know, when you shape pottery, your hands get dirty, right? I mean, clay is basically mud. It's smooth mud. And again and again throughout the Scriptures, we're told that God is the potter. God is a potter. We want to be like our daddy. We want to be willing to get our hands dirty. We want to be willing to be involved in this world in a way that gives grace those who need it. We need to see need, and we need to meet it by grace because we're generous like our daddy. Another application of, of this, I think, is in our culture, um, the flip side of this is it's easy to be lazy. There's a lot of ways that we can be lazy. A lot of us, because of how wealthy and how rich our culture is, we can work to a point and then say, hey, I've got enough in the bank, I can sit on the sideline now. But God made us to work, right? God made us to work because it glorifies Him, because it reflects who He is. He's a working God, He's a creating God, and so that we can have something to share with others. So, so work is not just for a paycheck. And a lot of us think, I just go to work so that I can feed my family, and if I've got enough to feed my family, well, I'm not going to work anymore, right? God tells us to work. He's made us to work. And so I, w- I would challenge you to rethink how you see work. It's a good thing that, that reflects who God is. And we should work and we should do it so that we honor him, we glorify him and what we do by being the kind of people that make things, that honor a creative God, but also the kind of people that then share with others. The, the last section I want us to look at is this focus on forgiveness. So we should love his forgiven children. He's forgiven us, so we should forgive other people. He brings this out in verses uh, 20, or excuse me, 30. 32. He says, and don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay? So, God is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, right? The Holy Spirit's not just this kind of force out there. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's God. And He lives in us. He loves us. And He's jealous for us. It says in James, he, he, He yearns for us jealously. He wants our hearts. He wants our devotion. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. And the Holy Spirit is given to us when we're forgiven through Christ. It says this back in Ephesians chapter 1. We looked at it a couple months ago. That when we trust in Jesus, taking our sin for us, that we're actually given the Holy Spirit. We're not waiting for some future magical moment. But by faith, we have the Holy Spirit now. It says live in a way that doesn't disappoint, that doesn't sadden, that doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit. And then now he's going to give us more details to what that looks like. What does it look like to live in that way? In verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So he's kind of coming back to this anger thing again, right? I said earlier that he's outlined that there's this, this concept of righteous anger, right? We see it with the psalmist. He's quoting Psalm 4.4. He's bringing that back out. He's saying, yeah, there's... You can be ticked off, right, that people are speaking ill about you. People are saying wrong things about you. You can be angry about that. that it's possible to have righteous anger. But in, in general, the anger of man doesn't accomplish the righteousness of God. James says that, that 
that's not how you're going to get things done. You should trust God. And so you need to put away all these outbursts and this anger. We shouldn't be these kind of malicious people. Malice is this evil intent for someone else. I'm going to read it again. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Right? So he doesn't really leave a lot of room for us to say, well, I'm not that kind of angry person. Right? That's kind of what we do. If you're a high justice person, you're like, well, I'm the good kind of angry person. Right? I mean, you say that, you don't have to raise your hand. But we say that. Right? We say, I'm the good kind of angry. Those are the bad kind of angry. Well, he kind of covers all the bases here. He says, put it away. Don't be angry. Okay? Don't be angry, and he, he brings it home with verse 32. Be kind to one another, okay? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So if you're a high-justice person, you really want to see justice accomplished. God does too. But in the mystery of his providence and the way that he's accomplishing justice in the world, he's also a forgiving God. And so in his justice, he took your sins. Yes, you high justice people, he took your sins upon himself. He forgave you of your sins. You're a sinner too. We're all sinners. We've, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it says here, Christ has forgiven you, therefore forgive other people. Again, he, he gave that, that room earlier. There is such a thing as righteous indignation. He's not condemning you for ever being angry against injustice. We should be like our daddy and be angry against injustice, but there needs to be boundaries there. We need to be slow to anger like our daddy, and we need to be forgiving like our daddy. We need to forgive others. We need to recognize that he's forgiven us so that we then would forgive other people. We would be kind to other people. We would get rid of the bitterness. We wouldn't let it keep festering in our soul, keep running over it over and over again in our mind, but they did this, but they did this, and it's so wrong, and, and your daddy agrees with you, it was wrong, it was evil, it was sinful. When you've been sinned against, it is sin. When injustice has happened, it is injustice, and God hates it. And he died for it. And he's going to fix things. We're headed to a future where he makes all things right. Jesus said when he came the first time, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. You read the rest of the Bible, he's coming back. And there will be condemnation. Justice will be put away permanently. We live in a time now where he's patiently extending his grace. He's patiently extending forgiveness to all who will accept it. We need to be the the community of people who have accepted that grace, that forgiveness, who believe in it, and then extend it to other people. Or, or we're just, the way James talks about it, we're just drinking dirty water. We're like an impure spring. He says it doesn't make sense that we would praise God and curse men out of the same mouth. right? It's like a corrupt spring. We should be this clean spring. I have a picture here. The purpose of it is to disgust you. Um, it's a <laughs> avert your eyes. It's a picture of someone drinking, drinking dirty water. right? Throughout the Scriptures, Christ says, James says, these different places in the scripture, that we should be like this pure spring. I'll I'll take the picture off. I know it's gross. We should recognize that we were a dirty spring and that God cleansed us. He forgave us, and so we should no longer let that bitterness fester, but we should extend that that forgiveness to other people. So so step one is it's between you and God. Start with the gospel. Do I even believe this thing? 
Do I really believe this? Do I think it's just a bunch of junk? Or do I believe that I was really a sinner that needed to be forgiven? Do I really believe that? Am I a sinner? Have I I ever done anything wrong? Am I a sinner? Maybe I am. Maybe I'm a sinner that has sinned against a holy and perfect God. Maybe I've committed cosmic treason against a God who took it so seriously that he came and was born as a man and died in my place. If then if I really believe that, okay, God, I need to accept that. Thank you for forgiving me. Help me to forgive this other person. God, help me. For some reason, it's, it's hard for me to forgive this other person when I recognize I've sinned against you in, in greater ways than they sinned against me. Help me to forgive this other person. I choose to forgive this other person. Then you need to take the act of following up, right? There's got to be some kind of closure. Sometimes you're going to cause more harm than good to talk to that other person, right? That may not be necessary. It's really weird if that other person doesn't think they did anything wrong, okay? So that, that gets real awkward. But if possible, talk to that other person. If possible, talk to that other person and tell them, I, I forgive you. Christ has forgiven me, I forgive you. Put closure on it. It may not be possible, it may not be practical, so write a letter and throw it in the fire. Do something to put closure on that. Tell, tell your spouse, talk to someone that you trust. I've forgiven them. This was done and I've forgiven them. And then the third step that's going to emotionally help that change to take place over time is to pray for that person. Pray for the person that has sinned against you. You know, just as Jesus said when he was dying, forgive them for they, they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Go to your Father. Father, forgive them. Help me to forgive them. Change them. Do something. Put, put closure on the issue. Be forgiving because Christ has forgiven us. We're dearly loved children. Again, he says in Ephesians 5.1 and 5.2, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we walk in this new way, we will be the, the people of God. We will be this, this prophetic people that the prophets were talking about in Zechariah 8. You know, he started quoting that at the beginning of this passage, talking about this new kind of people that would actually speak truth to each other, that would actually love each other. That even though we're, we're different colors and we're different shapes and we're different sizes and we grew up in different places, we love each other and we exhibit the forgiveness and the grace of God because we're imitating our daddy. We don't have to compete with each other. We don't have to fight. We don't have to push and scratch to get ahead. We trust him. He's taking care of us because he loves us and he's adopted us as his kids. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you do love us. Help us to believe this incredible message. We pray that you would transform us in Jesus' name. Amen.